This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, and with me today is Sarah Neal Smith, a professor of art history, theory, and criticism at Maryland Institute College of Art. We will be discussing her new book, Metrics of Modernity, Art and Development in Postwar Turkey, available starting this month from University of California Press. The book looks at how artists, gallery owners, and critics attempted to produce, present, and discuss art during the 1950s as Turkey became increasingly integrated into the American-dominated Cold War order. So, first, I'd like to welcome you, Professor Smith, and ask you if you could talk a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you chose this topic of Turkey, and more particularly, art in 1950s Turkey. Sure. Thanks for having me, Ruben. It's great to be here. Um, I started researching this book about 12 years ago now when I was on the hunt for a dissertation topic in art history. Um, and I showed up in Istanbul in 2010 equipped with, you know, all the tools and assumptions of an American PhD program in art history. I was looking for the sort of artistic objects and documents that I thought would tell me everything I needed to know about the aesthetics of modern Turkish art, um, you know, hoping for some major artworks, some telling documents, maybe a, a manifesto or two. But I just kept finding again and again that the artists and the gallerists and the critics I was interested in care just as much about economics as mm. they did aesthetics. Um, so I found myself, um, as I started this project, really needing to leave behind some of my ideas about how to write art history and reach out into other fields, whether history, diplomatic history, Middle East studies, in order to understand those conversations that were taking place between art and economics in Istanbul and Ankara, but also in that kind of bigger global context of that post-war, early Cold War period. Well, so in that case, maybe you can talk a bit. What do you think your book has to offer for conversations that are going on about early Cold War era and the discussions going on in the art world at that time? Well, the big goal of the book is really to kind of break down those divisions, I think, that pertain often in the field of Cold War studies between the artistic and the economic, between these ideas around maybe hard data or aesthetic form, um, by really showing how these hegemonic ideologies of national development cut across those types of fields. They really became all-encompassing at this moment in history, not just in Turkey, um, but across the globe, really. Um, And I use this term, metrics of modernity, in the book to pinpoint and describe 
some of those larger priorities that originated in the economic sphere, but then became incredibly relevant for cultural producers as well. So privatization, individual consumption, integration into international markets, all of these were concepts that seeped into the art world um, and that really contributed to a kind of ambient awareness of artists and cultural producers' place in an economic world order and therefore ended up having a huge impact on their work as artists, gallerists, and critics. Um, So I think when we overlook this kind of cross-pollination of the artistic and the economic, you end up really missing a key dimension of this Cold War moment Um, that's not just relevant to Turkey, but also in many other contexts. Hmm. Well, in that case, let's sort of set the stage Your book focuses on a generation of artists who made a name for themselves from the 1950s onwards. So maybe you can talk about what sort of institutions and political imperatives were shaping the art world in the era before the 1950s, in the 1930s, in the 1940s. This new generation you look at, what assumptions were these artists challenging? What restrictions were they pushing against? What changes were they trying to realize in the art world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in in broad strokes, I think the the defining factor of uh, kind of Turkish public life in the 20s, 30s and 40s is the kind of highly nationalist um, nature of culture across kind of all spheres. Um, So the artists that I'm looking at in the 50s in Turkey um, are looking back to that moment, as you said, and pushing it back against some of these earlier models uh, and experiences. I actually... um, the post-colonial theorist Partha Chatterjee has a really wonderful way of describing this kind of evaluative moment Hmm. in the history of nation states. More broadly, he calls it uh, the moment of maneuver, this Hmm. kind of critical juncture when a first chapter of a national project is seen as reaching its culmination and now coming up for critical reevaluation in this sort of collective manner. And I really see um, these uh, cultural producers in the 50s as doing that. Um, What they're renegotiating, um, as I said, in kind of broad strokes, is the really, really close link between modern art and a kind of new national culture that followed on the establishment of the Turkish Republic in 1923. Um, broad strokes, right? A Turkish Republic is established early 20s under the leadership of Mustafa Kemal, also known as Atatürk. And it's really this totalizing project of political and cultural reform. Um, Atatürk overhauls the political and legal system, abolishes the caliphate, replaces Islamic law with the Swiss civil code. um, And it really reaches into daily life as well. There's a new calendar, a new day of rest, um, clothing laws requiring everyone to wear Western style hats and apparel. And there's even um, a kind of really sweeping language reform that takes place in the late 20s, changing the grammar of Ottoman Turkish, replacing Arabic with Latin letters, really impacting the fabric of everyday life. And the arts and the modern artists um, are a huge part of this larger uh, kind of highly instrumentalist program of building a national culture. Um, Ataturk, one of my favorite quotes that he says actually just months after founding the Republic, um, announces that he thinks that Quote, a nation without art and artists 
is like a person with a lame foot and a twisted arm broken and unable to walk. And I just, that really just captures in such a small uh, bite-sized piece, the really, really central role um, that this new administration perceived for the arts more generally. Um, Concretely, this takes a lot of different forms. Um, The new state channels funds towards reforming the formerly Ottoman Fine Arts Academy, which had been founded in the 1880s. It gets a new updated curriculum aligned with kind of European Beaux-Arts standards. It gets a new building. Um, The Men's Academy and Women's Art Academy, previously separate, are merged into one. Um, And you get a kind of host of administrators and artists who are really um, leading and spearheading this project more generally. Uh, Another of my all-time kind of favorite uh, metaphors come from one of the directors of the academy, Namak Ismail, um, who describes the school and the kind of bigger national mission as to become an artist-producing machine. Mm. (laughs) Um, And so I think this kind of Republican political culture really does treat artists as what Ismail calls raw material uh, that they then hope to turn into finished product, right? Taking these kind of unfinished, unrefined, uneducated individuals, um, feeding them through this institutional uh, machine, as he calls it. And at the end of that sort of imagined manufacturing process, coming out with polished artists who can serve the needs of the new nation. Um, So for me, one of the kind of um, most telling examples of what this sort of Republican art culture was like is the artist Bedrish Rami Eyubolu, who I sort of zoom in on in the intro of the book as an iconic example of what it was like to be an artist in Republican Turkey. Um, Eyubolu actually later becomes one of the most famous artists in Turkey. He's a poet, a painter. He's very prolific, a big personality. But in the 30s, he was just a young, aspiring artist from Trabzon. Um, And he moved to the big city, Istanbul, to become an artist um, and encountered kind of head on the sort of paradoxical position that the New Republic really put artists in. Um, Because on the one hand, Everyone, including artists like Ayubolu, were just wrapping their heads around what is this new entity, the Turkish Republic, learning what it meant to be a citizen of Turkey. But at the same time, the new regime was putting all this emphasis on the arts, the importance of the arts, and artists were supposed to be figuring out new modern ways to represent this idea of the nation that they're still just kind of wrapping their heads around. Um, So for me, uh, it was really useful to sort of extend and work through uh, Ismail's metaphor of an artist producing machine and think about this conundrum of the artists in this moment as both objects of development, objects of this kind of new nation state's developmental push, and as being agents of it at the same time. I mean, it's, it's really quite a conundrum as a, as a cultural mm-hmm. producer. Yeah. And you know, you, you mentioned Ayubalu. In your introduction, you, you describe one of his more impressive works, this uh, one, Villagers Watching the First Train. And you, you, you walk readers through 
what this art represents and what he's show, trying to show with it and what he's trying to say about the uh, Republic and its project. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that too, because I found that a really interesting part of your introduction. Sure. Yeah. So this is um, the kind of compressed story about how um, Ayubolu in just a 10 year period, right, between 1929, 1936, kind of goes from being what Ismail was calling raw materials to finished project product, mm-hmm. meaning he enters in as an aspiring artist. And by the end of that 10 year period, he has kind of attained that peak of success within the context of the Republican art world, which is when, as you mentioned, this painting, Villagers Watching the First Train, which he produced in 1935, is first of all shown at the annual state painting and sculpture exhibition, and second of all, wins a top prize, which means that it is automatically integrated into the new museum, the new National State Museum, which is another arm of this kind of bigger Republican project to build an arts sphere. Um, And it's, yeah, it's it's a canvas that has so much going on. It is just jam-packed with uh, the kind of iconography of the developing nation. It shows a row of peasants from behind. So already these kind of embodiment of um, a rural or agrarian Turkey, but that's also um, affiliated with its past. And they're watching this kind of uh, standard emblem of modernity, right? The the train is chugging by in the distance as it heads towards a bunch of factories and a kind of highly industrialized future that's on the horizon. Um, and so I really see this as, in some way, Ayubolu's early attempt to say, okay, how can we use the media of modern art to kind of affirmatively uh, represent this ongoing project of national development. Um, And one of the things that's so interesting about that canvas is not just the content, but also the stylistic choices that he makes, because Mm -hmm. it's um, drawing a lot on uh, French fauvism uh, approaches to really bright color, lots of broken up brush strokes. Um, and it's signaling, I think, Ayubolo's idea at that time that you can really use modernist and international artistic strategies to approach this end of a national art. So it's kind of this incredible combination of nationalist iconography um, and then these stylistic experiments all in one really dynamic canvas. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, okay, let's let's get into some of the actual chapters of the book then. So you focus on first a pair of galleries and then a pair of artists in order to illustrate and think through some of the larger questions you're talking about in the book. So let, let's talk about the galleries first. First, you look at a gallery Maya in Istanbul and then the Helicon Gallery in Ankara. So maybe if you could talk about each of these galleries and then maybe draw some comparisons between them. Sure. Yeah. Well, Maya, as you mentioned, or Gallery Maya, um, is kind of widely seen as the first private art gallery in Turkey. And these two comparisons of the galleries are really where I think through um, that metric of modernity privatization. So that's the kind of through theme um, that I think the groups of intellectuals affiliated with these galleries are really taking on. Um, Gallery Maya opens late 1950 in Istanbul, um, founded by this kind of incredibly uh, intriguing, uh, colorful figure, Adalet Jimjoz, um, who is half German, half Turkish. 
She has a career as a translator of German literature into Turkish. Um, she also has a career as um, is widely known as Turkey's quote unquote dubbing queen at this juncture because she dubs all of the kind of big blockbuster films of the time. <laughs> um, and she's also seen actually as Turkey's first gossip, col- gossip columnist a lot of the time. She was an avid writer of society columns throughout the 1940s. So she's got this kind of celebrity status um, by the early 50s that she really turns uh, towards the establishment of this art gallery. Um, It's in operation for four years. Uh, They hold over 70 exhibitions of really an immense, immense range of stuff from Turkish folk art to abstract painting from art students that are taking classes at the academy down the road to their teachers, the much more senior artists, including Bedrijami Eyubolu by that point. Um, And it becomes this kind of salon space, uh, a sort of nascent uh, art market space where um, art students rub shoulders with famous, famous Istanbul uh, intellectuals. Um, And it's really driven in a lot of ways by Jim Joe's uh, Jim Jones's desire, I think, to drum up an art market in Turkey. Um, she is helped, I should mention, in a kind of behind-the-scenes capacity by uh, Sabahattin Eyubolu, who is the brother of Bedrijami Eyubolu and a very well-known leftist scholar and critic um, in his own right. Um, and he, like Jim Jones, are, uh, by 1950, these kind of fully-fledged intellectuals, right? In the 30s, they had helped, like Bedri Rami Eyubolu, shape that Republican art world. And now um, in the 50s, they're kind of rethinking this art world that they had experienced firsthand already. Mm. Um, In Ankara, uh, a couple of years later, second private art gallery opens. Um, Of course, Ankara is at that time the capital of Turkey. And this is uh, opened by a much younger group of intellectuals and musicians and artists um, who call it Helikon, as you mentioned. Um, A name that they actually uh, choose because it's the name of the mountaintop in classical mythology where the muses supposedly made their home. So they frame this space as a kind of multimedia gathering space for all sorts of art forms. Um, It's a younger scene. It's a bit newer, a bit more avant-garde than Gallery Maya in Istanbul. Um, And during its pretty short tenure there between 1953 and 55. They show abstract painting, they stage experimental music performances, they run art classes, um, and it too becomes a kind of major gathering place this time um, in Ankara. Um, And although it's a little bit difficult to pinpoint who did what exactly at Helikon, they do have a very, very vocal spokesperson in the figure of one of their founders, Bülent Ecevit, um, who is at the time a journalist for the national paper Ulus, and then later goes on to become prime minister. So in the book, I really think about these two galleries, two different cities, two different generations, alternative models, I think, of how the Turkish intelligentsia tried to renegotiate those state-driven models of the cultural sphere Mm -hmm. now in this moment of the 50s. Um, So in Istanbul, the kind of historic cultural capital, 
um, you get uh, Jim Joe's, Ayubolu, and this slightly older generation critiquing these state-sponsored models that they participated in previously. Um, they both write uh, an extensive array of art criticism, including some about their own exhibitions, <laughs> uh, making the argument that those state-sponsored models don't really work, actually. They're worried that too much state involvement stifles creativity, stifles the art world. Um, and they sort of set themselves the task to be the ones that will create this new private institution, drum up this new private sphere of artistic consumption that they think will stimulate the arts in a more kind of healthy way is how they, how they um, put it. And what's interesting about uh, the Maya founders is they're almost less concerned about what they sell than that they just sell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're really, really most interested in building up that market, building up those consumers. Um, and it's less about specifically the types of artwork or the types of objects that they're promoting. You get a really different situation in Ankara and at Helicon, um, at least as Ejevit describes it in his own uh, kind of quite substantial collections of art columns that he publishes at the time. So he and his peers had actually not witnessed that transition from empire to republic. So there's more of a kind of tabula rasa ethos to Helicon, a sort of sense of a young, new generation. Uh, and Ejevi has some pretty, uh, personally has some quite specific theories about how modern art can impact Turkish democracy. So for him, it's much less about trying to generate an art market, a private sphere, like the Gallery Maya Intellectuals in Istanbul. Instead, he is really invested in trying to use the gallery as a stage where individual citizens can come, have these kind of transformative encounters with abstract art, and through these encounters, kind of gain a skill set that he thinks is important um, for Turkey to function as a democracy. He thinks that by viewing these kind of distilled visions of individuality, these distilled visions of the self that you get in abstract paintings, that they would come to better understand their own position as individuals mm. in society, building on that, generating free thought, self-expression, all these priorities that he thought were necessary to move Turkey increasingly away from that more authoritarian, top-down single party state of the Republican area towards what he was really idealizing and his sort of broader cadre were really idealizing um, these forms of multi-party democracy distinct to the 50s. Well, that's interesting. I, you, you bring up a point that I hadn't thought about since I first read the book, which is that Edgevit has these views, whereas the uh, Gallery Maya owners they also have, as you mentioned, they're focused on privatization, but they're also focused on consumption, consumerism, and the, the ideal type of consumer of art, right? Yeah. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that as well, some of their views about who should be buying art, how they should be thinking about art, that type of thing. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the, the vision of the consumer that you get in affiliation with Gallery Maya, I should note, is one that largely comes through Adalet Jim Jones's society columns and her own writing. So it's a very specific vision um, that may not necessarily apply to 
what all of the intellectuals affiliated with Maya thought the ideal consumer was. But Jim Doe's is writing in this uh, kind of emergent genre um, of uh, gossip columns or women's um, sort of popular uh, literature, I guess you could say, and that she's going to plays and cocktail parties and receptions and exhibitions and concerts. And she's not just reviewing and recounting the uh, kind of artistic event that's going on, but is also kind of mapping out and in these really, really hilarious, I have to say, uh, columns, commenting on the people around her, right? The very same uh, elite intellectuals uh, that are often coming to her own salon. So in that particular context and in that lens, Jim Jones is really zooming in on actually often a female consumer. Mm. Um, And she's often framing uh, the purchase of artworks that, of course, she's happily suggesting <laughs> should be purchased from her gallery um, in line with these new consumer practices around um, domestic goods, consumer goods. Um, so one of the um, comparisons that she makes that I thought was the most telling is she uh, explains what um, artworks cost in relationship to radios and refrigerators. Mm. (laughs) She sets up um, ways that you can buy artworks on layaway or tuxit. Um, And so she's kind of replicating, using, and referencing all of these modes of consumption that uh, your kind of bourgeois housewife that is kind of an emerging figure at this moment might be using, um, but this time to uh, kind of uh, justify and explain why one might uh, want to purchase artwork for the home as a kind of domestic good in and of itself. Mm. Well, thanks. Yeah, well, so, I mean, those first two chapters I found fascinating, but my favorite one was your uh, third chapter in which you look at this uh, 1954 art competition called Developing Turkey, which is organized by Yapa Kredi Bankası. And I loved how you described this and you love, I love how you described the uh, controversies that arise from the judges' decisions at this competition. So I'm hoping you could walk us through that a bit. Tell us uh, about this contest, why it caused the controversy it did, and what that controversy tells us about what's going on in the art world in Turkey by the mid-1950s. Well, I'm happy to hear you enjoyed that one because I will say it was one of the most difficult to write. Really? (laughs) It it turns out it's really hard to give narrative form to the kind of absolutely chaotic controversy that broke Mm -hmm. out at that that painting contest in 1954. Um, But yes, it's actually quite a well-known story uh, in Turkish art history. Um, But nobody had ever really gone through and broken out all of these kind of dynamics around this particular event. So the story starts September 1954, when this private bank, as you mentioned, Yepakredi Bankasa in Istanbul, decides to stage a painting contest in order to generate gigantic monumental paintings that it can hang in its various branches around the country. Um, And I should say it's not actually as strange a phenomenon as it might seem to have a bank involved in this way, because banks had actually been quite involved in the cultural sphere 
had a pretty important early role in investing in the field of the arts since the early days of the Republic. So this was kind of par for the course. And Yapakriti actually had a specific cultural branch um, that directed this uh, particular contest. Um, so the head of the bank's cultural programs sends out word about this contest Um he distributes this very small little list of rules um, about the submission requirements that there is still a copy of at the bank's headquarters in Istanbul um, today. And the rules are incredibly specific. They're really designed to generate paintings for the bank that are completely in line with this kind of older, more nationalist ethos of art for a new nation dating back to the 1930s. So for example, they all have to be two by three meters so that they can be large enough to be seen widely by a kind of national public. Um, and more specifically, you mentioned the title of uh, the painting contest is Developing Turkey. Um, they all have to address the theme of development in Turkey or economic production in Turkey. Uh then there is a kind of secret final rule that the bank official circulates by word of mouth, but doesn't write down. Uh, and that is that the paintings should be figural rather than abstract. In other words, they need to use a kind of didactic or pedagogical or illustrative form in order, uh, goes his line of thought, to convey their ideological message. Um, so the prizes, by the way, the cash prizes for this are astronomical. <laughs> the contest sees a lot of interest from, uh, you know, the kind of youngest art student up to the most senior faculty at the Istanbul Academy. Um, and they get 36 canvases, which are put up on display in Istanbul Uh in September of 1954. And the bank even invites an international jury, three quite well-known art critics who happen to be in town uh, for a meeting of the International Association of Art Critics. So the jury arrives, they walk through, they take their time and they select a first prize winner. They make their announcement and kind of everything explodes uh, because the painting they've selected is the only painting that did exactly the opposite of what the bank wanted, right? So it doesn't have a clear figure. Uh, it's kind of like a Van Gogh-like gigantic burning yellow sun. Um, if there's imagery of economic production, um, it's very difficult to discern visually. Um, and it was certainly not the kind of didactic figural approach uh, that the bank was hoping for. Um, on top of it all, it turns out once the contest results are announced that it hasn't been made by one of the uh, kind of well-established uh, male Turkish instructors at the academy, um, but by a woman artist named Ali Berger, um, who is has never studied formally at the academy and so is seen in many ways as a kind of elite outsider. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. So in this chapter, I kind of 
parse all of the different competing perspectives um, that uh, sort of swirled around this event at the time. Um, we're talking, you know, angry artists fighting it out in the pages of the daily newspapers, letters to the editor, um, Budent Ejevit in his capacity of art critic at Ulus writes three separate columns on the event. Um, and as you said, Ruben, uh, it really becomes this kind of moment, um, an incredible way of sort of crystallizing both Turkish and international ideas about how painting should be used to represent national development in the 1950s. So you get uh, a lot of the more prominent um, male academy artists like Bedri Rami Eyubolo or Jemal Tolu, who are absolutely incensed. Uh, they accuse Ali Berger of uh, you know, not sticking to the rules and of uh, kind of just going her, going her own way. Uh, the jury uh, conducts a bunch of interviews with local journalists, um, and they really don't pull the punches. They are very uh, open about the fact that they thought all the other 35 other canvases were cliched and used sort of um, tired uh, visual forms. Um, and Alia Berger herself sort of tosses some real zingers into the mix, um, shooting back at her critics and saying how uh, ridiculous she thinks it is that people would use an approach as simple as um, using something like a ram as a symbol of production. Um, so... I think that uh, we see here this whole range of uh, perspectives, right? We have the bank official and the academy artists advocating a kind of literal representation of processes of, of development um, and emphasizing what they called legible form. Um, and then you have the artist herself and the jury and her other defenders arguing that, in fact, the best way to kind of prove Turkey's advanced cultural level, it's a high level of development, is by using more abstract forms that at that point are kind of this lingua franca um, uh, in a sort of international art world. So it's a debate that uh, really breaks down these kind of more binary distinctions between socialist realism and democratic abstraction that I think we often uh, associate with this early Cold War moment. And instead, it shows that um, this sort of cross-section of international figures are really much more invested in this kind of third term or this alternative paradigm or question, um, which is the question of development uh, in art. Well, and one thing I liked about the chapter two was yeah, I'm I'm no art expert myself. So I looked at her painting and my, my first reaction was probably similar to some of the critics. Yeah, it looks like Van Gogh. There's, you know, where's the where are the people in it? What, what's it all about? And I thought you did such an incredible job of describing, putting that piece in context with some of her other pieces too, to show that she really is deeply engaged in these issues of talking about development and its effects. And if you look at, this as part of her larger body of work, you really do see those preoccupations that she's dealing with. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the things uh, that can be um, 
an additional factor in looking at Alia Berger as an artist is she was incredibly privileged. She was very well off. She was part of a um, famous Ottoman family that was uh, both famously elite and famously artistic and bohemian at the same time, the Shakir Pasha Aydese. Um, and so these questions around uh, what it means for an elite woman artist who is able to engage in this activity because of her own um, affluence, um, what it means for her to take a look at the ongoing urban development Mm -hmm. in Istanbul and its effects uh, on lower class populations. Her critics were not wrong that there are problematic dynamics at work there. Um, But one of the things they did was collapse her kind of elite status or use her elite status as a way to try and discount her entirely. Um, And that I think, I don't think we can do that. Mm -hmm. Well, so the final chapter in your book looks at, I mean, speaking of the Shakir Pasha family, it looks at a uh, cousin of hers. You look at, in this chapter, you look at Furia Coral and you look at her career. And so maybe you can talk a little about uh, Furia. Can you tell us a bit about her, her family background, perhaps, her artistic goals, and crucially, how she was able to present these goals in a way that appealed to American funding bodies in the 1950s, because I thought that was a particularly interesting aspect of this final chapter. Yes. Yeah, so as you said, Furia Coral was actually Alia Berger's cousin. Um, and in both of the artist-focused chapters in the book, I made a kind of conscious decision to try and focus on these women artists who were very much in the art scene, but are not necessarily given as much importance within a national canon uh, because they did not come through that official Republican art machine that I was sort of describing at the outset as Bedri Jami Eyubolo or other artists did. Some of that meant that um, they were therefore not authoring the art histories that their peers were then authoring um, about the Turkish art scene. Um, some of it has to do with the fact that Furia, for example, like Alia Berger, did not attend um, a formal academy, um, but instead got her artistic training um, in other ways. So she uh, spent some time in Paris in the late 40s and early 50s. She had decided um, after a stay in a Swiss sanatorium that she wished to um, pursue ceramics as her medium. And so she was able to... uh, Um, receive formal training there in Paris uh, in that particular medium. Um, She, there in Paris in the early 50s, was actually quite warmly received, made a lot of inroads into the uh, French art scene with these kind of hybrid types of artwork that she produced, which were these pretty large-scale ceramic panels that she covered in sort of uh, patchy abstract glaze. So they looked in a lot of ways like abstract paintings that you would hang on the wall, um, but were in this different medium, which had a very, very different uh, materiality. Um, Mm. In uh, the 1950s, yeah, as you mentioned, she meets in Istanbul a representative of um, the Rockefeller Foundation named John Marshall. And 
the Rockefeller Foundation at that moment, like a lot of these funding organizations, um, was very involved in uh, trying to accelerate the development of different nations in the Middle East through uh, public health programs, through infrastructure programs, through educational programs, but didn't necessarily conceive of uh, artist-focused programs as part of um, a way to stimulate national development. And what was so interesting to me about this particular case study was it was one of the most kind of literal, uh, clear-cut illustrations of the way that folks in this moment really believed the artist perhaps could catalyze economic development. Um, Because as Furia uh, begins to have a dialogue with John Marshall in person during his visits in Istanbul and via letters, um, she makes quite a strong case to him that um, because her work is both partially artistic and partially a craft-based medium, if she can be educated in particular um, ceramic strategies in the US, she could, she argues, then return to Turkey, train others how to make these artistically informed ceramics, and in that way kind of catalyze a local ceramics industry that would actually impact the domestic economy on a kind of national scale. Um, And so it's, one of these moments where you see an artist very savvily uh, advocating for herself in this in these dominant terms of economic development, and it works. Uh, the Rockefeller Foundation initially funds her for a three month trip to the U.S. She ends up going to the U.S. and Mexico for nine, um, and it actually opens the door to a whole host of more humanities focused programs run by the Rockefeller Foundation, um, which ultimately ends up founding another a number of the other protagonists in the book, including Eubolo um, and Bülent Ejevit, um, and really ends up considering um, the arts as an integral part of this kind of more holistic approach to um, uh, modernizing the Middle East, Turkey included. And Turkey really was at the center, I got the sense, of some of the Rockefeller Foundation's uh, emphasis on art, right? More than other countries? As far as I have understood through uh, reading the archives, yes. And I think that that has to do with Turkey's kind of privileged status in this broader uh, sort of modernization theory literature or the sort of going wisdom of development theory of the time, um, which really positioned Turkey as this kind of ideal laboratory um, and this kind of incredible success story uh, for the types of economic development programs that the Rockefeller Foundation was um, hoping to mm. support. Well, I think one last thing we could talk about, and it occurs to me as we're talking, uh, maybe you could finish up by describing how um, the, the legacy of the 50s or the, how some of these people's careers tur- turned out in the, in the 60s, even onwards. Coral, uh, Berger, Gallery Maya, Pelican Gallery, did these things last? What happened to a lot of these things we've been talking about as the decade uh, progressed and went into the 60s? Yeah, the 50s is a very, very discreet uh, and uh, sort of delimited moment. And that's actually one of the reasons that the book focuses so tightly on this particular decade and these particular case studies, because in a lot of ways, um, 
all of the artistic endeavors I just described um, end by the end of the decade um, in various ways. So um, Gallery Maya uh, closes halfway through the decade, um, largely as far as I can tell, and and this is also how its founder, Adalet Jimjo's read it, um, because it just couldn't drum up the market that it had envisioned. And it would take um, another decade or two until a private art market really, really uh, gained traction in Turkey. Um, it's typically said that that really comes in the 1980s with the kind of um, neoliberal regime of the 80s, though, of course, mm. it's simmering um, and growing in the decades in between. Um, similarly, Ejevit, uh, who in the 1950s really has one foot in art and one foot in politics, and as I mentioned, is um, really convinced in a sort of utopian sense of their uh, their potential to go hand in hand. He makes a choice. He uh, leaves behind the cultural sphere um, and he heads towards politics. Uh, and he makes that, that choice um, in 1957 when he decides to become um, a member of, of parliament there in Ankara. Um, and actually, Jim Joe's um, watching watching from afar even sort of, uh, um, you know, mourns his departure from the cultural sphere, um, recognizing it as a departure even then. Um, similarly, the uh, kind of artistic paradigms that um, are so uh, catalyzing so much debate or driving someone like Friedrich Corral's success so much in the 50s are really, really supplanted in the 60s by um, not just a kind of expansion of media, of course, a kind of move away from abstract painting that was so important to the Yepakredi contest or even to Fure's, uh abstract ceramic panels. That's a, that's a kind of moving away from abstract painting that happens globally, um, but mm. also uh, along with it, kind of major changes in um, the status of the Turkish economy that changed the conditions of art making and the subjects of art making. Mm. So um, the kind of experiments with American style um, capitalism that are happening in such a sort of hothouse atmosphere in the 50s kind of end almost equally uh, quickly uh, in the early 60s when a new administration uh, comes in and uh, switches its economic policies yet again this time much more towards um, import substitution. Um, and so in that context, artists in the 60s are uh, both moving into new formats, whether it be uh, performance or more conceptually based works, but are also concerned with just different economic and labor issues um, of the time. Well, that's that brings me to the last question then. So the book's done, it's out. What's the next project you're working on? Are you moving forward in time? Are you moving to a different subject? Uh, what, what's next for you? I'm going back across the Atlantic. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I'm actually, I'm working on a book actually that that looks at a lot of the same themes around art and Cold War politics, but that shifts geographically um, to the United States. Hmm. Um, it looks at really famous American artists, actually, who traveled to the Middle East uh, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, were very inspired there by their time there, by Islamic art, but mm -hmm. whose trips there have been, for some reason, completely erased from the kind of standard historical record. So um, it 
looks at Andy Warhol's time in Iran and Kuwait, at Robert Rauschenberg and Cy Twombly and Helen Frankenthaler in Morocco, at Frank Stella in Iran. Um, and it's a revisionist history, essentially, that kind of pushes back against the quite hermetic or even nationalist ways we've understood those figures as canonical figures of American art um, and shows instead their imbrication in all of these conditions we've just been discussing, including oil politics, changing conditions of travel, transnational exchange happening at this moment. Oh, well, that sounds really interesting. Um, but right in the moment, this is the book that's out. This book is wonderful. And I hope uh, people will find it, read it, because it really, um, as someone who thought he had a good knowledge of 1950s Turkey, I really learned an incredible amount from it. So I uh, can't recommend it enough. So thank you for taking the time to talk about it with us today. It's much appreciated. Thanks for having me.